After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, it's Raghu, and I am back with Mind Rolling. New friend today, Danielle Bolelli, but we have people in common that we are very close to, so uh, it's like just a family extension, and uh, great to see you, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, it's hard to think of just putting you in a little uh, basket of, of one thing, but that's complicated. Good luck uh, with that. Yeah, really. You're, you know, the combo. I mean, so Danielle and I met uh, earlier this year and um, through Duncan Trussell, everybody, my guru, podcast guru. Uh, And uh, so it was, uh, it's, we didn't get a chance to really just be the two of us. Like mm-hmm. that's the beauty of podcasts. I mean, eh? isn't that so? definitely? Yeah. Uh, and, um, but, um, you are so generous that you shared with me that book that you wrote Oh, because, uh, I loved it. And, uh, it just, yeah, I got, now what's going on between you and Duncan? I got the whole thing. Okay, <laughs> nice is really great. So uh, I don't. I mean, you've told these stories a billion times. Uh, Danielle has. You still have the podcast, correct? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm still doing two of them. Actually, I'm doing the Drunken Taoist, which is more chatty, kind of what we're doing here: interviews, chats, uh, fun, and so on. And then I do History on Fire, that is more. Just me going in depth about particular times or characters in history and telling those stories. Mm. Great. So um, you're going to have to tell those stories or some of these stories again because they're so terrific. And, you know, some of it is so easily relatable, even though we grew up. I mean, you grew up in Italy and then Mm -hmm. came here, what, high school, something like that? At the end of high school. Uh, In 1992, I was 18 years old. And that's when I that's when I move right after high school uh, to U.S. But uh, I love the uh, <laughs> when you went. I guess it was grade school, mm-hmm. and you know it was a little bit daunting, like school can be for you know. Oh, yeah. if you're just going. Uh, I have my own story, but I love I love Mister Evil. Mister Evil, yes, <laughs> of course. I mean, it's uh, 
I guess everybody encounters their bullies along the way. And it gets even weirder when your bullies are your friends. And so you're like, wait, are you my friend? Are you an evil bully? I'm a little confused here. And it's back and forth and keeping you on your toes as life often does, right? Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that was a trippy relationship. Still my friend to this day, despite really? the oh, that's so great. evil. Yes. Yeah. Well, more of the thing, and, and this is how you kind of wind yourself into it, in which we're all, of course, dealing with since we realized, holy shit, I'm actually here. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to be a somebody when I was in this wonderful, spacious place and got thrown into this thing. And yeah. here we are. And then it's called fear. So, yeah, that's not a fun feeling, right? And yet one we all deal with at some point or another. Yeah. But meanwhile, okay, here's how I dealt with it. Mm-hmm. I... I produced a scenario. I'm a producer, right? That's kind of what I do in life. I produced a scenario in which there was a protective mechanism against the bullies, against Mm -hmm. not just bullies, against the system in general, the school system and all of it. And so biggest kid in class became my best friend. He actually built a little fortress (laughs) that no one else was allowed into except me. Nice. So, and you, Boy, you went in a bit of a different uh, direction, which informed a good part of your life, martial arts. So that's the thing I'm saying. I didn't know you were doing it. I had no idea. Tell us about that whole involvement because, you know, getting into combat sports and all of it. Yeah, I think it's uh, for me because I spent, I was an only child, so I spent a lot of time alone in my head just making stuff up stories, playing by myself, doing a lot of things in a very, uh, very stuck with me and my thoughts a lot of the time. So once in a while, it's discovering a practice that allow me to get out of my head and just be a hundred percent in the body and just sweat and muscles. And, you know, it, it became my form of meditation where suddenly like after two hours, I wouldn't have a single thought going on for a while. And I would walk out feeling so refreshed and feeling so good. So it was, uh, and why that one particularly? Because you can sweat and do stuff in a thousand other ways. I think that one is because uh, the relationship with conflict and fear. Because beside giving me the endorphin high of feeling good in the body and you know giving a break to my excessive mental activity, there was also something great about facing stuff that I'm scared of. Mm. And martial Mm. arts definitely does that because, you know, I wasn't that kind of kid. I didn't grow up as the tough, strong kid. I was, and so in that sense, it was a fascinating process for me because I could have spent my time doing uh, the things I was already good at. And that's great, but, you know, you develop more of something you already have. And instead for me, diving deep into an area of, uh, conflict, fear, a place where all my whatever intellectual abilities I could have wouldn't help me a tiny bit, uh, definitely added something to my personality. Whether that's a good or a bad thing remains to be decided, but it definitely (laughs) changes things around. Yeah, but it's a common thread for quite a long time. It wasn't just a little thing you did, right? No, Uh, it's been going on for 30 years now. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Um... Well, I like what you what you 
there's one little part here where you, this I really related with, um, and it was about, um, somebody said that you were a cross between Eminem and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> I should have paid whoever said that, because that's a good one. I like that one. That's your best quote, testimonial or anything, yes. right? Yes, I definitely. love Eminem. Uh, Eminem, what does he say? Eminem without the bitterness and a Dalai Lama you can get drunk with. Yes, that's a nice, I think that is a great compliment, because uh, that's what I strive for. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh boy. Um, but, um, of course, uh, getting a little bit, you, I mean, by the way, everybody, Danielle, uh, we're going to put links up so you can be in touch with all the wonderful things he's been involved with and his podcast and the books. And, uh, and I like to, uh, really work out with, uh, the listeners, just the kind of things that we can do to transform this basic thing of fear is mm -hmm. one major thing. So getting, uh, I think you, at one point you say, uh, so you talk about the horrible discovery that inside my mind lives a gnome who enjoys screwing up my life. Yes. The damn gnome. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. Talk about the gnome. Everybody's got that gnome. I call it something else, you know, uh -huh. mini me, but yeah, gnome. Yeah, the little gnome. Yeah, because it's it's weird when you realize that uh, so much of your life gets screwed up by something in your head passing you certain messages, telling you a certain story, telling you you're supposed to feel a certain way. And then you turn around and you're like, wait, this is all coming from inside of me. Why am I doing this to myself? It's easier to conceive of it as some evil gnome who's directing me rather than uh, rather than me. Well, it's like believing, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you got the gnome there and, and it's rattling, it's, it's rattling off all this stuff and you're going, yeah, oh, that's yeah. it. I'm that. Yeah. Yep. And I'm bad too. A bad mother, you know? Um, oh yeah. So yeah, it's a difficult thing, which is why, you know, sometimes you need a, a humongous psychic crowbar mm -hmm. to get you to a place where you can create the kind of spaciousness that can uh, witness this and go, no, that's okay. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, um, but back to the martial arts thing. Um, I mean, you, you, there, there, there really is a way in which you have used it aside. This has not just been a practice for you to beat up on some bullies. Sure, of course. Um, uh, you say, much of my life, both in and out of martial arts, would be spent trying to figure out a way to lure the little bastard out of my mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, or a pot of gold, perhaps, or, or a hot, shapely gnome lady. Turn the guy into it. Yeah. And yes. get some really good fantasies going. Um, yeah, uh, you know. So, yeah. What? Um, what? How have you used martial arts in a way to reflect inward to deal with what we're talking about? I think 
one of the things that I notice in my martial art practice that uh, that has been the most meaningful, because you know there are many levels on which it's meaningful, but one of the the most meaningful has been dealing with loss. And the reality is that in martial arts, it doesn't matter how good you get. You can be the greatest in the world and still you're going to have a bad day or still there's going to be somebody who's going to be better than you two days from now. And still the reality is everybody loses. And whereas losing a basketball game is annoying by whatever, not the end of the world, being physically dominated by somebody else is not a particularly fun feeling. So it sucks to lose. It really sucks. You know, loss in martial arts is a particularly unpleasant feeling, both physically and mentally. And yet the reality is it doesn't even matter how good you get. You're always going to lose at some point. You know, you may lose less rarely than somebody else, quote unquote, but when you get on the mat, you're going to deal with it time and time again with that feeling where you want to be anywhere else but there. When you realize that there's no way that this is going to turn out well for you, that the other person has your number and you're in for a really long night of just being smashed. And so the logical reaction, you know, the ego reaction is let me out of here. I don't like it. Let me get me out of here so I can still indulge in my ego fantasies. The other one is realizing that that's life. You know, life will find a way to kick you in the balls no matter what. You know, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how happy you find yourself in a certain thing. At the end of the day, there's still death. There's still old age. There's still sickness. There's still all the things that are going to kick you around. And so learning how to deal with loss, with realizing that that is the nature of life, that you're going to lose you know, given enough time, you lose everything you care about. That's a tough one. That's a really tough one to play with. And in a sense, for me, I wouldn't say that martial arts solved that from me. I far from it. But I would say that at least martial arts started making me comfortable with the concept of losing or with the concept of uh, sometimes not having a choice on how things are going to turn out, only having a choice in how I'm going to react to them. Now, this is a big ask, but in terms of loss, I mean, you're speaking, it's one thing losing a a martial arts, as you say, a match. It's not fun, but it's okay. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But you you come from real experience, and I wonder if you wouldn't Uh tell the story of uh, meeting your your wife sure. and and so on and 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 don't worry about the detail because it, it would uh, it was such a powerful thing for me to experience. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, I met book. my wife through martial arts, and then uh, you know we were together for about twelve years or so. Uh, we had a daughter together, and shortly after we had our daughter, which was toward the end of our relationship. About a year into it, after my daughter was born, almost the moment she stopped breastfeeding, my wife started getting sick. And initially it was one of those things, you know, like the way we all get sick in some minor way, like, oh, my shoulder hurts. It's like, ah, big deal. You pulled something, whatever, no biggie. And then it got progressively worse really fast and turned out it was a brain tumor, too large to operate, in the wrong position to operate, highly aggressive, you know, the whole thing where it was like, there's no good outcome out of it. And so within six months from the same 
from the very first uh, minor physical ailment that could be spotted of this from the first symptom, then she was gone within six months. So really fast process, which in some way, I mean, if that's the trajectory, probably better fast than slow because it's not a fun process, but still brutal, you know, still horrible to see somebody who's strong, uh, who has, I mean, it's horrible for anybody. It doesn't matter. You could have been in a wheelchair all your life and it's still rough, but let alone when you see the difference, the jump from being in this super healthy physical space to see it all waste away before your eyes in no time. It's brutal, you know? And I actually, right now, as we speak, I, I just got round two of that because I just spent a month in Italy with my father who was sick. And then I came back to US and five days later he died. So off back to Italy to, and being with him, seeing him because, because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like young, young, but he wasn't old either. He just turned 70. And he had a ton of energy. You know, last time I saw him, he was like a force of nature everywhere. And then seeing him now, it was just brutal. Like when I arrived in Italy, I hadn't seen him for a few months and he looked like seeing an Auschwitz survivor, you know. He was so thin. He was just, so it was another one of those like, hey life, I got the lessons once already. Can can we be done with it? Can we... If I sign the right documents, I say I learned it. Can can we move on and not do this again? But apparently, that's not how it works. Mm, yeah. Mm. And then the relationship with your daughter so great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That out of the, that suffering, something beautiful grew. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter was. Um, I'm sure everything, I can't even imagine how it would have turned out because certainly would have turned out different. I don't know exactly how different, but um, but yeah, by the time my wife died, my daughter was 19 months old. So she was still tiny. And now it was just my job 24-7 in addition to trying to make sure we still have food on the table in addition to 10,000 other things. So on one end, of course, it was very stressful time-wise, energy-wise, but on the other hand, it was wonderful to ever, you know, to have somebody that, you know, rather than sitting back and looking at your navel going, the universe is so mean to me. It's like, yeah, that's great, but you got a job to do, you know, <laughs> you need to, you need to take care of this yeah. kid. And yeah. and she's hilariously funny. She said the weirdest things all the time. So I've always, I had, you know, I always had a blast around there and it's, uh, easier every year because of course as they grow up uh, i tend to have an easier time i think most men do have an easier time with kids as they grow older rather than when they are babies babies but um Hmm. but yeah it's been quite a process well so yes no stranger to loss yeah not that any of us i mean there's uh, those were very you know giant loss especially one's Mm -hmm. wife uh and having a child uh, but n- no one's a real stranger to loss no. at all. And uh, and then you, you say, uh, well, what we're left with is a paradox, right? You know, it's uh, how, how do you go out back out there and, and enjoy life uh, in all its intensity and uh, be relatively unaffected by the cards that you're dealt, which is what we're talking about, what uh, mm-hmm. very very difficult and how do you see it yeah it's rough right because 
the natural human thing is that the more you like something, the more you love something or somebody, the more you want it to last forever. And the nature of life is that it doesn't work that way, that nothing lasts forever. So there's this weird thing that we develop attachment to things be, or to people being in a certain way when we know full well that they are not going to be that thing that we love and adore and want to preserve forever, that we are assuming that we live long enough, then we are going to see that thing or that person just disintegrate or change and eventually disintegrate. And so it's it's a rough one because the more you love, the more it seems natural to get attached. And yet the more you get attached, the more it wrecks you emotionally. <laughs> So there's that classic wheel of suffering where it's, you know, classic, classic concept, right? And so that idea of being able to enjoy life to the fullest, to love to the fullest without the attachment that causes all the suffering, that's a serious riddle, right? That's, I mean, as far as life riddles go, that's probably one of the biggest ones, if not the biggest one. Mm. Boy. Yeah. Who invented impermanence? I want to know. Buddha didn't. <laughs> Somebody know. invented it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of whoever did. It's, uh, <laughs> could we just fall in love with things? They last forever. And, you know, like, like Disney movies, happily ever after, uh, right? I, I do believe that according to the Tibetans, there there is a, a plane that you can go to that's like I, that, that's not so good. They say, I, I was with uh, a long time back, a Tibetan lama, great lama from the last century, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, very uh-huh. well known. And I, through a real magic, <laughs> I got to hang out with him. Um, I'm, you know, we haven't even really talked about it. Of course, I think you know the man in the blanket, Neem Karoli Baba, who that is. Yeah. Ram Dass's yeah. guru, my yeah. guru. Yeah. You know. So uh, I had to get a, I'll just tell this little story because sure. it's, um, it really relates to what we're talking about eventually. I I went to a, a stop by the ashram. Um, I was way further up in the Himalayas and I saw Neem Karoli Baba who said, uh, oh, you just met a Tibetan Lama. And I go, no, no, I've never met a Tibetan in my life. A Buddhist, I was supposed Nai Tibet Lama, he took you and gave you teachings. I go, no, Maharaj, did, no, it didn't happen. He said, Jiao, and he sent me off. I went to Delhi to get a passport new, renewed, and I knew the high commissioner. Um, of, of, I'm from Canada, so I knew the high commissioner through the guy I worked for in a radio station, and he invited me to lunch over at the concert. I'll take care of it, no problem. I went over there, and just by chance, I said, hey, you know, I heard that the Canada is letting Tibetan refugees in because there was a lot of them, you know, this yeah. was back in the day. And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, and he went like this. And he looked over, out of a door came a, ret- a monk with a retinue of other monks behind <laughs> who happened to be Kalu Rinpoche, one of the greatest lamas, as I said. And, I, and, and then I heard this ring in my head, holy shit. Did you meet a Tibetan? Oh, my <laughs> right? God, you fucking know everything like that? How could you know that? Anyhow, it took me in. We ate ornate, beautiful. This guy was a Buddhist, the high commissioner, James George. 
And uh, then some Canadian CBC guys, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation uh-huh. guys, said, we're going to go interview him. Do you want to come along? I said, of course I want to come along. They went into a room. And then they were asking him dumbass questions about Christianity, which he said, I don't know anything about that. Right. <laughs> and then they, they looked at me and went, well, maybe you could ask a question because they knew I had worked in radio. And I, as soon as I said, okay, he sat up and boom, it was like a laser. And he, op- I, I had stuff in my mind and, and certainly he just responded in a way that, you know, I can, it's like me and you hanging was the same thing there. I can recall it. Anyhow, what he said was in terms of the, the different planes of consciousness and there is a heaven world you can go to uh-huh. and everything is nicey, nicey forever. <laughs> okay. But it's a forever that you get bored and tired of i think i would imagine it's like a bit of a hell world heaven is heaven and hell right right so he said this play this being a human being is Mm -hmm. the only plane from which you can actually uh become free free Mm. of right free of the gnome free of the gnome it's the only plane as a human Right. And he said, so take care of yourself, <laughs> take care of that body. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's have respect for the fact that you have one right now. You know? Yeah. So yeah. No, I, I bite. I bite. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just that once in a while when you're on this plate, you're like, okay, I get the concept, but if we could tweak it just 20% less clothes and <laughs> fangs and death and stuff. And yeah. just a tad, the wooden part. Huh? I could go yeah. for more than 20. Uh, me too. I'm just yeah. trying to be diplomat. You know, I you see. start yeah. easy and yeah. then you work your way up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's so... Because it's, uh, yeah, it's rough. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and we don't like to... Uh, we don't like being human. And uh, Ramdas uh, had a, a, a teacher that was didn't have a body. And he would always say, I mean, I'll take my teachings wherever I can get them. I don't give a shit. Of course. Uh, yeah. So this, this guy used to say, Ramdas, get with it. Take the curriculum, which be human, you know? Yeah. 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 Like a lot of what happens in the spiritual world is we assume that persona that we had before we discovered that there maybe is a path to some kind of freedom and we just uh, it's just a pivot move <laughs> it doesn't and it's unfortunate and, it's, and that is part of being human and you go okay that's okay you know uh yeah and i think that's the gig because on one end there's a lot of amazing stuff about being human there's a lot of phenomenal experiences that go with our life here and now. There's also a lot of uh, just giant kicks in the balls and it's uh, learning to navigate the two, learning how to be able to accept that that's the reality of it, but still not lose all the amazing stuff that goes with it or actually use it as an opportunity to learn. That's the goal. Of course, a lot easier said than done. You know, you talk about, uh, I think, at one point, um, in terms of martial arts and summoning a s- will. Mm-hmm. I th- I think it's a limit. In my head, you know, just because of my self-referential, whatever, mm-hmm. it's a limited word. Mm-hmm. Will to power. Mm-hmm. 
And I think, uh, like our most recently, hopefully soon departed president, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, has he's got you know a will to power, and however he manipulates that, mm-hmm. you know, because he certainly has some real talents around that. Uh, it's only in the service of. Uh, self-interest, in my mind, my opinion. No, totally. And I think that's the issue that, uh, you know, for a long time, because I've gained a lot from martial arts, I always said these romantic fantasies that like, oh, martial art practice can make you a better person. And it's not really true. You know, martial art practice can give you some tools. Yes, you can become more disciplined. Yes, you can become more assertive. Yes, you can develop your will. But in the hands of a horrible person, the fact that they are more disciplined, more effective, and a stronger will, that's not a good thing. That's, uh, you know, I don't want a well-disciplined, effective Hitler. That's not, a, that's not a gain, you know, because ultimately the person is still a terrible person. So it's like, if you are a really good person to begin with, then those tools can help you. But if you are not, then those tools can be used to actually be more effective at being a horrible human being. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with mindfulness, right? That whole ubiquitous mindfulness movie. Yeah, yep. we'll get more mindful and sell more stock because exactly. we'll be able to focus a hell of a lot better. Yeah. So, exactly. So and, that's so. But there is something about will, uh, and mm-hmm. I liked uh, what was the reference you referenced uh, that kind of thing with uh, Michael Jordan in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Obviously, sure. you're a basketball fan, yep. I guess. Yep. So yeah, I'm, I'm I am as well, and I, I I remember that moment actually. I mean, the extraordinary uh, way in which he could summon something from beyond. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my current, by the way, uh, I'm, I'm tennis is a big thing. That's what nice. those are my two things. Uh, is Rafael Nadal, who comes from right. Spain, you know, who's now one of the top two or three players, and. He has that. I see that he has that ability to summon up. Okay, mm-hmm. so what is that summoning? See, to me, that's where it gets expansive. Mm-hmm. That summoning that takes out the talky, self-talky stuff, yep. completely removes it, and allows a space to be able to be um, inhabited that is um, uh, beyond tired beyond fear you know he actually says uh, uh, last year he played i'm going on about tennis now uh but last year he played uh medvedev a russian guy mm-hmm. in the u.s open right before the COVID. obviously it was in october i believe september october and uh he said before the match he knew this guy could, could, and though these matches are you know uh, best three out of five sets mm-hmm. and they yep. they can go on five hours i mean if you could imagine the yep. kind of guts it takes to hang in there and and uh routine that you got to do to get there and he knew this guy could go could do it so he said whoever's going to win this match is the one that can deal with suffering yeah (laughs) that's 100 percent true yeah and that is just a big analogy to all of us we don't have to Mm. be you know top tennis players or martial Mm -hmm. artists but we we do have to be an artist in our lives to be able to summon up that thing which can embrace. I mean, now you you talked about you dealing with suffering. 
right? Talk about your thing around that, and I'll, I'll give you mine. I think like, one of the yardstick by which I look at human beings in this regard is the ability to still be monstrously kind in the face of feeling tremendous suffering. Because mm. inevitably, most of us, when we get hurt, the natural reaction is to lash back, to pull out the clothes, to get nasty, to get aggressive. And sometimes there is a place for that. Sometimes there is a place for <clears throat> its self-defense. It's, um, I mean, it's kind of like the classic story of the person who's, uh, you look at most people who are horrible abusers and then you dig into their past and you find out that they were horrendously abused. And so it becomes this cycle where they inherited this baggage and then they pass it on to somebody else. And of course, this doesn't justify what they do to other people, but you can understand where it comes from. There's a sequence there. And to me, I'm always like, my heroes are people who can, who are, who are introduced to the really sad, hurtful, brutal side of life. And yet they do not pass it on to other people. Like their behavior remains unaffected by that. And if anything, they do because they know how harsh life can be. They use that experience to be as kind as humanly possible to the other people they meet and trying to... So to me, that's the ultimate of what uh, a phenomenal human being can do is no pain and yet refuses to pass it along to someone else. Kind of let that, uh, let that chain stop with them. And then instead, the way they behave is to try to, even if it's the most apparently meaningless daily interaction with somebody they'll never meet again at the grocery store, just try to give them five seconds of happiness. Make, help, do something that helps somebody smile. Do whatever it is. Be kind to animals. Be kind to people. Be kind to... Because life is hard enough as it is. And so that, to me, to me, that's my image of heroism. That's what I consider a hero. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you talk about it also, uh, stuff that I've read, just the relationship between, as you put it, toughness and kindness. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, what do you say? Um, as we were just talking, some people use, they are fearless and use this ability purely for gaining more power. Mm -hmm. And they don't think about anybody else. Yep. And there's no room for love, compassion, or empathy. Um, but that's precisely, as you say, um, everyone needs to embody that no matter what is going on in your life. And that is extremely, extremely hard. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but everybody, you know, everybody knows, as you say, all too well with heartbreaking sorrow is like and and if you it's it's impossible for me to believe that he, when we all know it so well and then mm -hmm. we see it we have to empathize i mean there's no way we how can, how can you not but that does happen <laughs> it does it happen happens, it happens more than not actually yeah. it happens so often that it's almost the exception to have the empathy rather than uh, rather than the rule yeah yeah absolutely um, I, uh, I think we got to fit in. So we talk martial artist, philosopher mm -hmm. as well. And you come from a family. Mm -hmm. Your father was, was a philosopher. 
and you yep. come from a nation of philosophers and artists. <laughs> uh, that's fortunate. Yeah, I, I uh, think when you when you are born in Italy, you automatically get a black belt in creative bullshit. You can, <laughs> you can talk about anything at, at the drop of a dime. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right, so I can just think of a subject and you can go off on yes, it? Yes, let's go. <laughs> That's actually what my dad did a lot. Like oh, really? At one point he was teaching, um, at one point I asked him, I'm like, wait, how are you teaching in a master programming fashion and design where you really know nothing about fashion or design and you haven't even graduated college? How did that happen, you know? And that was one of the funny things is that he had... Uh, most people tend to be specialists. They know one field and they know it really well. Mm -hmm. And he knew, you know, just enough of whatever it is that they were talking about to be able to make the right references. But then he would be able to connect that little part of life to a bigger picture of life. Mm. And then all the people who were specialized really? were like, oh, oh, wow, this is amazing. Uh, you're telling us more about what we already do. And it's like... And the reality is that he didn't know that much about that field, but he could make the connections yeah. with other things. And yeah, then, uh, uh, so, so I was always puzzled by that. I'm like, wait, how does that work? <laughs> that's so great. Well, oh my. Uh, well, we can't. Okay, so we've we've established a couple of things here that make up the UU and yep. uh, Zen Buddhism at eleven. You if you really read uh, Zen Flesh mm -hmm. and Bones at eleven. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about that because that's I'm, a that's an addition, an important addition. I'm actually using it as uh, bedtime bedtime stories in this day for my daughter. That's really? what we do. We do one Zen Fleshes and Bones story. There's a hundred and one of them. We do one a night. Wow! And uh, first I ever, because she doesn't really speak Italian, so first I ever try to read it in Italian, and then I help her fill in whatever word she's missing. So she's using it as an Italian exercise, and then we chat about it. And mm, so great. And yeah, it's a great, uh, it's funny. First time I read it, I think there were two or three stories that I found phenomenal and I basically didn't understand anything about the other 90-something. And then each time I read it again in life, it was like, oh, now there are two or three more that make perfect sense to me. Mm. Oh, now there's like, and now you're like, oh, now there are 30 that make perfect sense. And, then, and it's one of those very funny things that each time through life, I would discover another layer and something else that escaped me the first time. So I, uh, I yeah, it was uh, my introduction to a different way of thinking through Eastern philosophy, through Eastern religions, to Zen, through Buddhism, to I think Zen Flesh and Bones was the, the starting point to it all. Mm. Yeah, and how does that inform? I think, you know, my, my way of life, I see, if we want to attach a label to it, um, I guess Taoist thinking makes the most sense to me. Mm. Like in the sense that I see Taoism as something that applies to everything. And you don't have to be a Taoist to be a Taoist in a sense, because those insights are just the way life is. So there are Hindu can be Taoist in that sense, or Buddhist, or even Christian, or, you know, the insights are, that's just the way life works. And so to me, understanding certain basic principles 
has, uh, has been something that escapes the confine of, oh, cool Eastern philosophy. No, it's not Eastern philosophy. That's life. Articulated through Chinese thoughts 2000, whatever, some years ago. But is somebody else could say something today that just as Taoist without even knowing anything about Taoism, you know? Because those principles are like anybody who looks at life long enough will recognize them. So that's something that I found tremendously useful, you know. Yeah, when I was a teenager, then I started reading a lot of Alan Watts and then Krishnamurti and then Ram Das, of course, and then, you know, all of... And I've always found it incredibly helpful for my way of understanding the universe. Perspective, yeah. I talk a lot about it with people. Perspective. Mm -hmm. You can just make that shift out of coming from... Um, mini me place, yeah, or yeah. that scoundrel that you encountered in first grade, <laughs> right, <laughs> in your head, uh, yeah. So that because you know one of the biggest things we do is uh, judge. That mm -hmm. judge and jury is operating oh, yeah. all the time, yep. and if it isn't operating, then that other operation, which is called how do I manipulate this shit so I get the nicest result, no matter what it, how, who it affects or what it affects, right? All right. So, yeah. yeah, that perspective shit. And, of course, Buddhism does give that mm -hmm. uh, in, in a way that's um, practical, right? Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. my tradition that I come from in India is... Uh, it's called officially bhakti yoga, you know, the mm -hmm. yoga of devotion and all that. As soon as, as soon as people hear that, by the way, they go, yeah, okay, yeah, that love and light bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> Trumpa Rinpoche, I think you, you know who yeah, that is. Yeah. It, it, when we knew, we knew him when he was alive, he would, he would especially jive Ramdas all the time. So you're into this love and light shit, right? <laughs> uh, hey, at the end of the day, the only thing that counts is, does it produce the results or doesn't yeah, it? Because yeah, exactly. then all the rest is immaterial. But the reality for us was, though, that we were uh, the, the universal intelligence, whatever I call it, that mm -hmm. thing there, which is because I'm from Quebec yep. and that's how the French would say it. Uh, <laughs> that absolutely allowed a, it gave us a route for uh on one side this bhakti thing on the other side discriminating wisdom through buddhism mm -hmm. basically and yeah. so many of us have spent a lot of time with tibetan teachers and and so on and so forth and i think that combo is a little bit i mean i'm taking this you'll tell me okay a little bit too far in terms of Toughness combined with kindness. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that too, right? I mean, that's kind of what, you know, that has to be, there has to be, to me, toughness is some discriminating approach. Mm -hmm. That, uh, and as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says all the time, this, you have to, you experience it. You don't take Buddha's word for it, you know, that, that's a toughness, right? And I think that's where, that's where the way Eastern philosophy conceive of duality, you know, more the Taoist yin-yang kind of approach, the idea that, you know, whereas the West has been very 
you draw a line in the sand and there's good and versus evil and it's an adversarial relationship. Thinking of opposites as uh, they are dancing partners, there, there's a balance there to be struck. There's, and the balance may not be 50-50, actually rarely is 50-50, because, but it's constantly changing. And it's not even like, oh, I found the balance, it's 80-20. Well, yeah, for that second, good luck, you know, clap, 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 good job. Now, five minutes from now or five seconds from now, that balance is going to shift and you're going to have to find it again what the right balance is. But like... That's, I find it true in everything, you know, hardly anything I find to be a hundred percent one thing and zero another. There's always the little bit of balance between opposites, you know, it's like how you raise your kids, you know, and, and each one is different. So somebody may respond tremendously well if you give them a ton of love and gentleness and freedom and you give them a little discipline, but not really that much because they thrive on that. They do really well with it. They respond. You try the same approach with the next kid and it doesn't work at all because that's not how they are built and they need more structure. They need more rules. They need more. So now the balance shift, you still have kindness, but that emphasis on a little more strict discipline is more required with that one. And people argue about this, like discipline is the way. No, no, it's all about kindness is the way. And it's like, yeah, you're both right and you're both wrong. It depends on the kid, yeah. it depends on the situation, it depends, it, it, it's all contextual, right? Those mm-hmm. are just two archetypes and the archetypes are both needed. In which amount? Well, that's a case-by-case scenario. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I have a, a, good, a, men, a, a good friend and a teacher named Roshi Joan Halifax. Oh, yeah. And you know Roshi. And I definitely was, read her stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, she was close to Ram Dass and so on. And we, so we would spend time together uh, in, in Maui when there was retreats and all this stuff. And uh, and she's a good combo of, of what you're talking about. Yeah. She really is. She is an absolute take no prisoners. I mean, she would... I mean, maybe she did. She was a dancer. I think she did at, at one point. Maybe she was a martial artist. I don't right. know. But she has that uh, that will uh-huh. that is not engaged with attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's able to really um, embody the kindness and the toughness that we've been talking about. She's a good example of that, actually. I find those human beings that are hard to put in a box the way where it's like, is mm. she super kind? Yeah, she is. Is she super tough? Yeah, she is. Wait, most people are not both. And like, yeah, that's yeah. what makes the fascinating human being. Yeah, me. yeah, exactly. Um, what else was I? I was thinking about suffering. We we started talking about it a little bit and um, and dealing with it. And I guess... In uh, over the years, uh, and this Ramdas used to say all the time, and sometimes, of course, when you make big pronouncements, like mm-hmm. they are short of the complexity involved, right? Of course. And it's a, I love suffering. It brings me closer to the divine, to God. Mm-hmm. People go, what? what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You know, this is like spiritual upmanship, stuff like that. And, um, but it is, if you take a look at your life, the things that 
created change on a very, very um, much more timely basis, shall we say, have been things of which one went through suffering. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a wake-up that, that comes along with that. For sure. And as a result, one can say, it brings me closer to God, meaning it brings me closer to a place where these things get transformed because suffering is caused by attachment, mm-hmm. by a believing in all of the phenomenon. That's why the, the Buddhist thing is so great. Their whole thing around emptiness. And people yeah. go, well, that's a nihilistic bullshit thing too. No, it's got nothing to do with nothingness. Nothing to do with nothingness. <laughs> and all to do with the bliss of empty of of your bullshit and your attachment. And my favorite thing of Buddhism is their term self-cherishing. That's, mm-hmm. yes, I, it's, just, it's just wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah it's, uh, it's, it's a tricky dance to be human, that's for sure. Because uh, anytime you think you got it figured it out, then you find another layer of it all where you're like, oh, I did not anticipate this one. Oh, I didn't know that this was still in my head. Oh, I didn't. But yeah, it's true about the suffering thing. It's like when you when you lose the stuff you care the most about, what's left to be afraid at that point? What's left to be attached to? You know, for at least a little bit, attachment disappears because whatever it is that you are attached to, no matter how hard you were clinging to it, it still slipped through your fingers. Mm. So there's a paradoxical moment of complete heartbreak and yet this sense of relaxation because now you're you have nothing to cling to anymore you know there's no and so in that moment you you're just very much in the present moment because you know the past is gone the future you don't see one because you're like how can there be a future without this thing that was the center of my life and so you're just in this paradoxically peaceful space in the present and it comes from loss. So it's not something that anybody volunteers to want to experience. It's like, yeah, I really want to experience that piece. It's like, well, the price you got to pay for it is no one that anybody really wants to pay for good reasons. And yet it can happen and it does happen in that situation. I remember reading once there was a Ramdas thing when he was talking about visiting um, death row prisoners and talking about how he felt this sense of like, in, why? Because there was less attachment because these guys, they didn't have a future. Their past was gone. So there was, they were in that moment and that's it. And he was saying, yeah, if they all got, uh, if their verdicts were overturned, all this, all this state of consciousness would go away in a second. And I'm like, yeah, because that's what happens when you, when life gets back to normal and you start getting attached to things again. That's when the fear creeps in again. That's when amazing. Yep, that's the gig. Yeah, Yeah. I I have a a friend who's a teacher as well. Uh, Actually, just did a a thing last night. Uh, Well, we were thinking there was going to be a bunch of stress this week. Maybe we can get a couple of our brethren to just talk about this stuff a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, his name is Dale Borglum or Ramdev, and he. he has something called living, dying, 
Institute, and he works with people who are dying or are very right. sick and so on. And Sharon Salisbury, the Buddhist teacher, who I think you know. And, uh, and he was saying, I can't tell you, but that people, they, at the moment where they realize, the, like the prisoner who's going yeah. to be you know, on death row, the moment they realize that, suddenly their whole lives open up mm -hmm. in a way that they never did before. Yep. Spaciousness, the love, the, 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 the complete evaporation of that self-referential bullshit that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. He says, hanging out with that, it's like, that's the best job you can get. <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember seeing that in uh, in my wife's experience. I remember oh, yes, she, yes. she had a feeling, like, I remember once she told me, I feel really lucky. And I'm like, I'm sorry, let's try this again. You currently have a brain tumor. You're dying. You have been through hell physically. And she's like, yeah, minus the brain tumor part, you know, just uh, the way yeah. I'm feeling now, though, is, um, you know, she was much more open to realizing that there were people who loved her. You know, she came from a really harsh background, so she was, she always had her guard up. And so she had a degree of uh, just gratitude that she never had before. She had a degree of uh, feeling a love going her way that she, she always had a guard up that wouldn't allow her to feel it. And so she had this sense of like, wow, this is really beautiful, you know? And of course it comes from loss. It comes from, you know, that disintegration of the ego as it's getting destroyed because there's no, it's not going to last. So it's definitely bittersweet, but there, there's, there is a sweet part. There is that sweet part when you realize, wow, maybe it could have been this way all along or maybe not because maybe being alive is so hard to do it without a strong ego. That's, that's where the balance become difficult. <laughs> Yeah, with or without the kind of suffering that accompanies some of this, exactly depending on your karma. Yeah, um, but uh, and you, when you absorb these stories, and they mm -hmm. come from everywhere, especially around this particular, you know, around dying and death, and you hear, and not all of them are are in any way. People don't all have positive death experiences. Sure. They don't, but the ones that that do that you you get a feeling. And again, back to Ramdas's spook friend mm -hmm. said, uh, "Ramdas, you know, dying is like just taking off a tight shoe, <laughs> right?" And you, everybody knows that feeling. You, go, oh wow, okay, All right. And and the other thing he said was. And dying is perfectly safe. <laughs> it's perfectly safe. Perfectly That's a safe. great line. Yeah, we don't think much of that. And we, don't, yeah. we don't go there. But when you start to hear this, see, that, to me, that's another reason why being in the company of people who have in them a desire to really find truth and find a perspective that is not this self-referential little, you know, that little bad gnome, your little yeah. bad gnome and my little mini-me, it's, it's, um, it's going to take some work. <laughs> okay. Sure does. 
you know? I mean, and uh, consciousness is given to us, but apparently we do have to look at the way in which we can have a perspective, as we've been talking about, mm-hmm. a perspective that isn't um, lost in fear. Yeah, and it's hard. It's really, really hard. And, you know, I feel like I've, uh, quote-unquote, learned a lesson multiple times, and then it didn't, doesn't matter how much it has stuck intellectually in my brain. Once that experience started fading away a little, even though intellectually I would know the right words, didn't matter. Fear would come back, and I would be like, oh, man, there we go again, and I'm flooded with this stuff again, and I'm back in a place of attachment and all of that. And so it's... But then you can begin again, right? I mean, that's reality. That's the beauty. That's the human thing. Yeah. You know, as much as we have to appreciate how messed up we are, it's okay. (laughs) You know, uh, you can come back and start over. Because I think it's, uh, you know, we tend to like in our stories, our archetypes are very simple. There's, you know, you're in a place, then there's the moment of crisis, then you face the crisis, it looks terrible, but then you find a solution and you come out from the other end and it's all great and wonderful. What they don't tell you is, yes, until then you screws it up again and you're back in a horrible and then you play this game over and over and over again, unless you are some somebody that's way beyond my pay grade who somehow transcend all this, but that's entirely beyond my area of expertise. So I'm, uh, I'm very familiar with getting through and then getting back in and then getting out and back in. I'm not familiar with the being out for good. <laughs> for good. Yeah. I've only met one of those. Okay. Yeah. That's only a difficult. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, you wrote this this article and you sent it to me in the beginning was fear. You read mm-hmm. the first few sentences of that. You want to f- kill yourself. <laughs> Jesus, Daniel. In the beginning yeah. was fear. The fear that everybody has a body experiences, experiences once it realizes we live in a predatory universe, which absolutely everything gets to be eaten. It sounds like a, a bad grade a B movie. If right. not by the sharp fangs of a predator, but, this is good. Then by time itself. Then by That's time tr- itself. Right. That's rough, right? Would you realize that? You're Kala like, in the ay, ay, ay. Yeah. And it began to rule our lives, shrink our willingness to dare and rob us of the beauty of it all. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, after reading that article, it's like, okay, yeah, we've got to really get on um, uh, when we have this podcast. We're going to have to address switching our perspective so that we can really deal with this, you know. Yeah, that's why we are talking about before we started recording. We are talking. We mentioned the Zen monk Kyu Sojun from the fourteen hundreds. Yeah, we wanted to read a poem, but we couldn't find one. Yeah, but Kyu is a phenomenal line. That's one of my favorite lines ever by anybody who says, uh, "Throw me into hell." And I'll find a way to enjoy it. 
And I love it because it's not denying the harshness of it all. It's not denying, you know, there is a consciousness state that's like hellish. There is no, you know, painting it with rainbows and flowers and it's all great when in reality, uh, it's a little rougher than that sometimes. He said, no, no, I know it. And there's nothing I can do about it. I may get thrown into hell at any moment. Life unleashes all of its harshest stuff. You know what? I'm going to find a way to enjoy it which is that beautiful defiance that tend to inspire me, makes me, it's one of the few things in those moments that makes me feel good, is that defiance of, yeah, there's absolutely nothing I can do about changing the external circumstances here. You, you universe, you life are going to kick my you, ass. You, you, Yeah, <laughs> whatever it is out there is going to, or eat or whatever it may be, it's going to kick my ass all over the place, but I'm going to find this one little thing to smile about right before I get crushed again. You know, it's like, and uh, and I like that because otherwise it's very easy to end up in a very negative view, mm. you know, in a very, it's all gloom and doom. It's all terrible. Yeah, it's yeah. all, and you know, there are reasons to feel that way sometimes, but it's like, yes, that's all true. And yet there's yeah. this other thing and there. Yet. And yet, yeah. yeah, the Grateful Dead had another way to put that, Danielle. What did Jerry, I think Jerry, may, well, maybe he didn't, Robert Hunter wrote the, right. the words, I'm going to hell in a bucket, but I believe I'll enjoy the ride. A Touch perfect. of grace. Perfect, perfect. Yes, that's uh, a, that's a great, I forgot that he was in Touch of Great. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful yeah. line. Hey, uh, doggy. Doggy's barking, saying, time's up. Hey, we need to go for a walk. It's all this yeah, philosophy exactly. is great and all, but yeah. I need my walk. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danielle, for being here, Thank hanging you. with me. I mean, and we have to, we'll, we'll, we'll talk offline, get together, because we ain't that far away. Yep. And, uh, and everybody, as usual, go to the show notes on BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling. And you'll get all the connectivity from all the way to the Kuyu poems. Okay, you guys that are putting the show notes together, get those poems. Get, let's get a and and Danielle's book and web and and podcasts and and all of it. And we didn't even talk about Duncan Trussell. Oh <laughs> I was God. actually on the phone with him five minutes before we started the podcast. Oh, really? Did you tell him you were going to talk? We were going yes, to talk. Yes, yes. Yeah. He was all happy about it. <laughs> he went into one of his. Uh, 27 seconds laughter screaming <laughs> primal screech that he does and uh yeah it was fun because uh, my girlfriend was singing you know she just watched one of his twitter moments where he's like uh what was it the the mind makes thoughts like the mouth makes spit and uh so she she ran with it and was singing it along and i had to tell Duncan that i was telling you yeah i'm gonna hop on the call with uh, uh, now and he was yeah. having a blast yeah we should do something together the three of us one time we that would be fun that. yeah that would be, be a real lot of fun. fun yeah all right yeah. we'll talk to him about that meanwhile again everybody uh go to beherenownetwork.com and, uh, of course, Ramdas is there with talks that we pulled from his, uh, his past teachings that I introduce. Joseph Goldstein, my favorite. Do you know who Joseph Goldstein is? Remind Daniel. me one sec. The he's name he's one of the, but... yeah, he and Jack Cornfield and Sharon oh, Salzberg. Yeah. They brought back yeah. uh, Insight yeah. Meditation. 
but yes. he is he's they're all great his clarity is very great as they say in india i like that yeah so check him out go to be here now network everybody we'll see you next time thanks again daniel thank you